0: Welcome to Who's in STEM? I'm Ken Ono, your host and a STEM advisor to the Provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at UVA. Our goal is simple. It's to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA. The marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Now. Appealing to the kid in me, I have to say that I love the Toy Story films. You know them. They're Pixar's heartwarming stories about the boy Andy, a young boy in his room full of toys. Andy's favorite, you all know him, the cowboy doll Woody, voiced by Tom Hanks. And the super cool Space Ranger action figure in Buzz Lightyear, voiced by Tim Allen. Now, say 50 years ago when I was a kid, I would have loved Buzz Lightyear. And appealing to the mathematician in me, he had the perfect catchphrase.
1: To infinity and
0: beyond! But in reality, when I was a kid, the toys in my room were 100% inanimate. I had a yellow Tonka truck and bulldozer. Somehow they survived the five-year-old in me. I also had Lincoln logs. Perhaps some of the listeners, maybe some, will remember these inch-long wooden logs that you could lay at right angles and could build stuff out of them. I built little villages of log cabins, and I then populated these villages with little green plastic army men. And, well, what did I do? I took great pleasure in smashing these villages. I was also crazy about Legos. What couldn't you make out of Legos? I loved the sets with moving parts, like wheels and helicopter rotors. The wonder I had as a kid is shared by legions even today, both old and young. Indeed, You can go to Lego World as an amusement park. So where am I going with all of this? Well, with the Legos and the Tonka trucks and the Lincoln Logs, I, like so many, grew up wanting to build stuff. And I realize now that I secretly wanted to grow up to be an engineer. But as a son of a mathematician, I became a mathematician. So today, we'll vicariously fulfill my childhood dream and we're talking about building stuff. We're talking about UVA's Link Lab, where UVA researchers and graduate students play with devices that occupy an elevated quantum state of cool. We're not talking Legos or Lincoln Logs, and we're not talking about building make-believe. We're talking about building solutions to problems that matter in the modern world, the modern world we all share. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Jonathan Goodall, UVA professor and the director of the Link Lab, and Laura Barnes, professor and associate director of the Link Lab. John, Laura, welcome to Who's in STEM. Thanks for having us, Ken.
1: Hi, Ken. Thanks so much for having us on the show.
0: My pleasure. So, John, you're the director of the Link Lab. I don't think everyone knows what the Link Lab is, although if you've been at all paying attention to UVA social media or UVA today, you've heard the words Link Lab, and you're probably wondering what in the world is the Link Lab? So, What is the Link Lab, John? So Ken, the Link Lab is an interdisciplinary research
2: lab. It's housed in the engineering school at UVA. Um, We've got over 40 faculty members from different engineering fields. So we have mechanical engineers, civil engineers, electrical engineers, systems engineers, We also have computer scientists in the Link Lab, too, because computer science is part of our engineering school at UVA. In addition to those faculty members, we have over 200 graduate students working on their PhDs or master's degrees, along with undergrads as well, participating in different research projects. So our mission in the Link Lab is really to advance what we call cyber-physical systems.
0: Cyber-physical systems. That's right. Okay. Break that down for us. Absolutely.
2: So this is what gives us our shared passion. And given our size and our reach, we believe we're one of the top schools for cyber physical systems and labs for cyber physical systems in the world. But to your question, what exactly is a cyber physical system? That might be a new term for many of your listeners as well. So let me take a step back and try to explain that. You might not have ever realized it, but cyber physical systems are actually all around us. Uh, You probably interact with them. Many people interact with them every day. Let me just give you one example. So I just got a new minivan. Mm. It's actually a cyber physical system. Why? Many cars have over a thousand chips in them and they're doing all kinds of work for that car. So they're monitoring, they're um, sensing, they're using very advanced algorithms to do control. So think about lane keep or adaptive cruise control. It's got to have sensors to understand where the car is on the road, where are the other cars relative to it. It's got to run algorithms to know how to adjust things in the car. So should the car slow down or speed up? Should the wheel move left or right? And that's really a cyber physical system, all that intelligence working together to achieve some kind of outcome. And so a minivan's one example, a car is one example, but really A lot of devices now, and I would argue most engineered systems, are now cyber-physical systems. So whether that's a medical device, a wind turbine, manufacturing plant, even civil infrastructure are increasingly cyber-physical systems. So at UVA, of course, we're in the business also of training the next generation of engineers and computer scientists. So our focus on cyber-physical systems is actually to our advantage because it provides a lot of really interesting and engaging ways to do engineering and computer science on hands-on projects real world projects advancing these cyber physical systems across many different application domains and our lab really is focused on many different application domains for cyber physical systems so students working in the lab they'll learn the latest approaches to machine learning and artificial intelligence real-time sensing computer control but really apply those skills for having impact on society so we're the Link Lab because we understand problems aren't constrained by academic disciplines, and it requires multidisciplinary teams to collaborate and work together, and that's really what we're trying to work on in the Link Lab.
0: So the term link has several meanings here. On the one hand, you're linking devices to our human experience, but you're also linking different types of expertise in engineering and, and computer science, so on and so forth. So you're linked in, like, every way. Exactly. Well, wow, that's... That's pretty amazing. We're definitely not talking about Legos. So the Link Lab is involved in so many different projects, which is one of the reasons that it's in the air. But before we get to talking about some of the successes and the research projects, let's circle back a little bit. I'd like to know about the history of the Link Lab, right? Thomas Jefferson didn't have the Link Lab in mind when he drew up the grounds. So maybe, Laura, tell us, what's the origin story? How did the Link Lab come to be?
1: Yeah, so, Ken, the Link Lab really came to be because we had a need, and we had several dispersed faculty across five different departments, as John mentioned, working on these areas of cyber-physical systems on pernicious problems in really important domains like healthcare, smart cities, autonomous systems, all the way down to the hardware that powers these. And then these folks that are working on the nuts and bolts that go into these systems that integrate sensing, computation, and control. So the Link Lab was really a way to bring that all together. And it began in 2017 as part of a strategic investment fund. And as we talked about, we're linked in many ways. Because it links not only us through our departments and gives us a unique identity, but through cross-cutting research, naturally taking down the barriers that are often in place across departments and providing new ways to innovate. What's cool is we've seen tremendous growth since uh, 2017, all the way from 20 faculty and 100 graduate students. We well, started. To now, you
0: started out with already 100. Okay, yeah. That's what, and now,
1: and now we have 45 faculty and more than 230 graduate students. And I think that will, you know, this need and excitement about cyber physical systems will only continue to grow. And the space is living itself. It was designed for collaboration.
0: And where is the Link Lab? The Link Lab's yeah. in Olson
1: Hall. Mm-hmm. So close to the football stadium. It's like the whole second floor of Olson Hall. And the physical design is really this natural playground for us to collaborate, build, brainstorm, and engage with our peers, our students, and um, think about these hard problems. And so picture this. Imagine a newly renovated 17,000-square-foot space, or if you think in terms of sports, a hockey rink or a third of the size of a football field. Completely designed for the people inside of it. The glass doors on all the faculty offices welcoming students. They know when the their their advisor is there and they can come in. Conference rooms, whiteboards, actually. <laughs> <laughs> conference rooms, whiteboards, meeting spaces, transformable arena for social events, lunches, dinners, really big seminars, all designed to foster these interactions and collaborations. The students are at the center, so their work area is at the center as the engine that powers the Link Lab through their common threads of research, educational, and professional development programs. The Makerspace, this is where things are built you know, the autonomous systems like the IndyCar, smart sensors for measuring breathing. So this is where the action happens. People are working on workbenches. We have plenty of spaces where students and faculty can meet for a coffee or an impromptu brainstorming session. And it's really cool. I think the biggest thing about this space and the Link Lab itself is that it is this identity Outside of anything else departmental that we have. So, students identify as Link Lab members, faculty identify as Link Lab members, and we have this great environment where creativity can flourish.
0: I visited the Link Lab a few weeks ago in preparation for this episode, and I can echo how stunning this renovated space is. And if I understand it correctly, John, Aren't you holding an open house soon that's, that's right. That's open to the public so you can share your wares? When is that? So we do have an open house for the Link Lab. We call it the Research Day.
2: It's October 10th and 11th. So October 10th, we'll have events in the Link Lab itself where students can demo some of their projects and, and people can come and see. It's largely geared for industry, but we really open it up to others as well if if people are interested, they can go to our website and, and learn more. And then on October 11th, we're going to have an event actually hosted at Darden, where we really talk more about our research and a number of students will give presentations and different panel discussions around different topics that we're working
0: on. We'll make sure that that information uh, is also available in our social media feeds. So I think it's important to stress that the Link Lab is new, right? This is only five, six, seven years old, and it, and it is continuing to grow. And this is all part of the kind of vision that President Ryan has for the University of Virginia, right? And it, and it's an indication of how the university builds and invests in strategic research initiatives that matter. It's, it, it would be quite easy to just continuing and operating university as as has been done for many decades. And this is an instance where the university has made a bold step. The link lab is one of several types of investments that the university has made. And as we will hear in some upcoming ep- episodes, there are other initiatives, the strategic research infrastructure initiatives, the grand challenges. And it's all part of a theme that uh, President Ryan and Provost Balcom are strongly pushing as part of the 2030 plan. So it's a very exciting time for the University of Virginia. So John, Laura, you, you mentioned a number of the initiatives that the Link Lab is involved and supports. I heard about the environment, uh, healthcare, mental health, smart cities, and the list goes on and on. And we have to start talking about some of them, right? And But I don't exactly know where to start. So maybe John, we'll start with you. Images and stories of devastation related to the changing climate. They fill up our news feeds. Nobody can escape them. It's regrettable. Raging firestorms, hurricanes, severe drought, flooding. This is stuff that would have been in Hollywood five or six years ago, but it's our real-life experience today. What's the Link Lab doing in view of these many challenges?
2: That's a great question, Ken. Thank you for that. Um, So we have a lot of faculty members in the Link Lab working on environmental issues, um, environmental sustainability, resilience problems. I'm one of those faculty members, actually. I'm a member of the Environmental Institute here at UVA, which is Pan University, so across the entire university. And I get a lot of collaborations and collaborators through that partnership in in the Environmental
0: Institute. So for the listeners, the Environmental Institute is another example of one of these major investments. And by the way, Professor Goodall John is like all over grounds. He wears many hats and it's really a treat to have him here. Well, thank you very much, yeah.
2: And many other people in the Link Lab are
0: also part of the Environmental
2: Institute. But for me, when I think about these different hats, that I wear when I think about the link lab itself, what is our unique niche? We're thinking about environmental sustainability and resilience and how to bring advanced technology to that problem. So back to this idea of cyber physical systems, uh, how can we leverage some of that sensing, some of that modeling, all of that work to really help address some of these environmental problems that we're facing as a society? So let me just share a little bit about my own work just to give a, an example of this. Um, so I'm a civil and environmental engineer by training. I focus on water resources. And a lot of my research is studying flooding and coming up, trying to come up with ways to design new ways to uh, both predict and mitigate flooding impacts for communities. So over the last couple of years, I've been working with colleagues and students on flooding issues in coastal communities in particular. And a lot of work has been partnering with the city of Norfolk, Virginia, as a test bed and trying out some of our research ideas in partnership with the city. So we're building new models capable of predicting when streets might flood in really high resolution so people can get that information and and help it to inform decisions that they need to make. The city can have that information to help inform um, how they deploy resources during flooding events. And that really is, from our perspective, a, a sensing and computer control problem. So how do you sense the system? How do you use cameras to know when flooding is happening? How do you use models to predict when it might happen in the future? How do you even use computer controls to to uh, control the urban drainage system to be more efficient than just the way it works passively right now? So we're thinking all of that. And in short, that means we're thinking about civil infrastructure systems as cyber physical systems in mm-hmm. the link lab mm-hmm. to help with environmental resilience. And like you mentioned, um, the university is making a lot of investments in this area. And my own research has benefited from that, too. So we're growing our collaborations beyond the Link Lab walls, stretching to other schools, collaborating with the UVA's architecture school, with faculty members and students in the in the College of Arts and Sciences, and even beyond the walls of UVA, too. So we're collaborating a lot with universities located in Norfolk. So Old mm. Dominion University, Norfolk State University. And it's been really exciting to kind of grow those perspectives, but also bring it back to what we're trying to do in the link lab itself.
0: So it's a third way in which the link lab links things. That's right.
2: Across, across grounds and across universities as well. And so, you know, that Norfolk example, just, it's really nice because it grounds it, our research. So research grounded in real world problems, we think is really important for link lab we can learn a lot through that work. Students can really get engaged in that work as well. But what we're trying to do is really advance approaches that can be applied for any city in the world that's facing flooding problems. So how do we take what we learn and and pass it to others? And that's where we we have partnerships with industry, actually. So we have an industry affiliate program within the Link Lab where some of the basic research we're doing can be translated for practice through industry engagements and the industry not only helps with that research translation, but they also can bring projects to us as well, have internship opportunities for students and hire many of our students once they graduate too. So that's one of the ways that we're trying to, maybe another linkage, you know, between (laughs) the university and industry and trying to uh, have students learn these skills while they're still in school so they can be uh, really effective when they take take their first jobs.
0: Yeah. So it sounds more like a web of links. Maybe it's just me. When I think a link, I think chain links, so like a few chain links, but we're talking about an entire web of connections. So Laura, I wanted to turn to you, and I, I know we could spend a lot more time, John, talking about the environment, but the Link Lab has tentacles reaching out to so many different important challenges. So in addition to these existential environmental threats, Laura, in one of our first, ep- in fact, our very first episode of Who's in STEM, we featured your colleague, Bethany Teachman, who is a celebrated uh, psychologist. And I know that some of your work in healthcare is linked, no pun intended, is linked to her work. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So, as already been mentioned by John, we focus on really hard problems that benefit society and pressing issues across society. So, let me give you a high level view of smart health or what you would broadly characterize my research as, which focuses on how we can really reimagine, build, or leverage everyday technologies to provide a lens into human behaviors, and ultimately how this lens can be used to help improve our well-being, performance, and ultimately our health as humans. And so... One of the prominent issues that we focus on in my lab is how do we take these technologies – everybody has a smartphone, a smartwatch nowadays – how do we take those and reimagine them to understand how that – what we can measure from these devices relates to our health.
0: Yeah, not just counting steps. Right, right?
1: exactly. So we already use that. We might use it in different ways. I might know that when I stay out late or eat a late meal Mm -hmm. that I don't sleep as well. Or if I have that glass of wine, I don't sleep as well. So these are examples of how we leverage digital technologies to improve our health. But we can go further. We're only at the beginning. So we have these sensors like GPS, audio, motion light all of these sensors that can monitor our patterns of daily life like where we go how much time we spend at home socializing with our friends how we move how we sleep how these biomarkers so everybody's heard the term biomarkers but in the way we talk about them we're talking about digital biomarkers Mm -hmm. what are the footprints that we leave on these devices that we can sense that help us infer something about our health. And so looking at those systems that can be as measurement tools for barometers of our health. And so in one of the areas, as you mentioned, you have my fantastic collaborator Bethany Teachman on, Uh, we work with psychologists to actually look at how we can use these technologies to tell how anxious we are. So does your phone know when you're stressed or anxious? And so we're using smartphones and wearable devices to be able to understand that. And so right now and ever increasing, as you heard from my collaborator, since the COVID-19 pandemic, we have a critical need for more accessible mental health care. So we're driven by this need. Um, so. Coupled with digital technology, artificial intelligence can be used to really provide a new and innovative way to provide digital health care. So everything from continuous monitoring to diagnosis to better understanding of how we might personalize an intervention. And these technologies are available all the time, whereas we have a shortage of therapists and uh, people that need help, don't always go seek it. I hear it so, over and over again. Yeah. People
0: can't make get, get an appointment yeah. to see their therapist, right? Yeah,
1: so we by no means are replacing this, but we want to supplement it and provide resources. It could be something that we provide to supplement. It could be in the time you're waiting to get care. So we're really thinking about how these technologies can be used to complement and make things better. We don't want to replace what's already there. Um, and so really, can we sense when individuals are anxious? Like do we see a change in your activity patterns, your your heart rate, um, when you're about to go out uh, or give a speech or some, some do we see these patterns and can we tell when you need an intervention? And so we coined this term uh, in this my research area, it's called just in time interventions. And this means can we get to the people when they need it? Not just this one size fits all model, but can we, get to you when you need it most. So in a time when you're receptive and a time when you need it. And so we are building these systems. We have to think about really hard engineering problems like privacy. Like we're sensing some pretty sensitive information. So we have to think about privacy preserving ways of collecting data, preservation of battery. Like how do we do this while not like killing your battery so you can call your mom later, or, you know, uh, safe and secure storage, personalization, like how do we use AI to better personalize to the individual? Like everybody is not the same, so they need a different uh, intervention. And so we really think about those problems. And that's my work in mental health, Ken, but we have A lot of other cool work in the Link Lab going on, which I want to touch on. One kind of neat project that really is cross-cutting smart health, smart cities, and hardware for Internet of Things devices is really looking at how the environment intersects with our health. And so we have an NSF-funded project called the Living Link Lab, which is a collaboration of numerous faculty that looks at. Thinking of a building as alive, and can we tell if the indoor environment is healthy? How many occupants are in spaces? And how does that help with productivity or well being? So, what is that connection? And so the opportunities are endless in this test bed. So when you walk into the link lab, there's sensors to monitor these these things. It's uh, not feng shui, it's yeah. just real science. <laughs> yeah, we also have people wearing sensors so we can look at that interconnection between how they how they feel their well-being and the environment. Like what if the environment and your embedded sensors and AI all coupled together could say, oh, your mood is low. Maybe you want to go grab a friend and go to the arena and get a coffee. And so can we recommend those interventions linking those two two sources? And so really thinking about that. We're doing so many cool things in smart health, and I'm sorry I can't mention them all, but everything from like, how do we develop cognitive assistance to help first responders make good decisions mm-hmm. during emergency mm-hmm. situations? Uh, how do we understand circadian rhythms, manage medication side effects, concussions in athletes and when they should return to play? How to make clinical trials more inclusive? And all the way down to the sensor level, piezoelectric sensors to monitor how we breathe.
0: Quite a uh long, amazing list of projects in healthcare, smart cities, the Internet of Things. But I also do know that that's still only a subset of what you cover in in the Link Lab. Our time is somewhat short. um, But John, maybe you could say just a little bit more about some of the projects that uh, we haven't yet spoken about. Maybe tell us what it means to be the Internet of Things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we do a lot of projects in smart cities to go along with what Laura was saying about our smart health work. And, you know, underneath all of these, I would say, is this Internet of Things research that we're doing. So we use so what is Internet of Things It's probably a good right. place to start. Right. So if that's not a term you've come across before, I mean, essentially it describes the growing number of connected devices, um, different devices that can connect to the Internet, maybe have some kind of processing power it's shortened to iot sometimes so people might hear the phrase or the, the the term iot often these are battery powered devices so that they can be deployed in lots of different locations and even sometimes no battery at all just harvesting power from the environment with maybe a little solar panel on it mm-hmm. maybe it's even just picking up the heat from your body to power itself some of the devices that people are developing that Wait, are iot devices thing? yes for for different um applications they can be very low power Um, power harvesting devices. So this cuts across a lot of what we're doing in the link lab, as you can tell. And we are big users of IoT for medical applications that Laura was talking about for smart cities, applications, environmental applications.
0: Your minivan and traffic. Yeah, the minivan and traffic has a lot of IoT devices.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But I think what makes us exciting is we don't just use the IoT devices. We have a group of faculty and students that are creating the next generation of IoT devices, going all the way down to how the chips are built, new ways of making them power harvesting, uh, new ways of making them even more power efficient. And that feeds back up into the application domain. And uh, that's what makes us, I think, a really powerful lab is to have that cross between all the way down to how these, these systems are built and designed up to the application space as well. So if you just think about, smart cities with this ability in IOT, you can start to see all the different possibilities of different problems that we can work on in the Link Lab.
0: Well, wow, that's great. Now uh, we have to begin wrapping up here, but there is one topic we haven't yet talked about. It's been it's definitely been in the news. The university is quite proud of it. Jennifer West, you're the Dean of Engineering. Good friend, she loves to talk about this project. It's your Car. We're very proud of the IndyCar, the autonomous IndyCar that's um, supported by the Link Lab. Laura, tell us about the IndyCar project. Yeah,
1: I'm a roboticist by training, so I enjoy any chance to talk about autonomous systems and cars. Uh, the IndyCar project is led by Madur Bell, a faculty member in computer science. His work is leading the way in fully autonomous race cars, so his research is to make more agile and safe autonomous vehicles. But what does that mean and how does he do that? So he leads the university's Cavalier Autonomous Racing Team, which started in 2021 as part as a Jefferson Trust Grant and support from the Link Lab. Now it's got industry sponsors like Neuro and Hexagon, but this 30-student team, their goal is to be the top autonomous racing team in the world and push the frontiers of multi-agent autonomous driving at the highest speeds possible. So Professor Bell's research grew out of a hobby. He first developed a car, F110, which is one-tenth RC prototype of a real race car.
0: One-tenth by scale? Yeah. Oh, so it's a cute little fast car.
1: A cute fast car. Yeah. So this is where it all starts. So this impressive system enables research, education, outreach. So it's used by undergrads, grad students, and allows the team to power their algorithms, designing and testing them in the Link Lab because we don't have a full-scale race car. And I mean, is bring it safe? Those. I mean, is
0: there a race car zooming around the halls?
1: <laughs> at, sometimes, sometimes. at times, at times. <laughs> okay. Um, and they bring these algorithms and adapt them in the competition competitions to a real race car. Um, so it's used. This platform is used by over eighty institutions across the world. Bell and his team have competed with other universities at the infamous Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In the first ever India autonomous challenge with and now one full-scale these are,
0: full-scale Indy cars. Yeah, now these this, are full scale. Now this scale. is the real deal. Right? Yeah,
1: with one million dollars in prize money on the line. So the goal is the team that makes it twenty laps, which crosses the finish line without causing a pileup or impeding another <laughs> team wins. So that's pretty easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after developing their technology in the lab, students program these full-size autonomous wheel race cars. So I won't keep you in suspense. How did they do in the race? The Cavalier Autonomous Racing Team earned its place as the fastest all-American self-driving race car team in October 2021 at an average speed of nearly 120 miles per hour and a top speed of 126 miles per hour in the historic India Autonomous Challenge, solidifying UVA's place among the international leaders in autonomy and self-driving technology.
0: Go Who's! And uh, I'd like to add that MIT was in the competition. So um, go Hoos. <laughs> so I have to wonder, uh, the Indianapolis 500, this is the brickyard. Isn't this where um, the drivers have to drink that big bottle of milk? I think that's right. In the winter circle. Does, right. So do you have a photograph of Professor Bell uh, drenching himself in milk? No? I've not seen that yet. I haven't yet.
1: seen that one. Okay, so maybe <laughs> that's for 2024. Yeah.
0: All right, the next time he goes and wins, make sure you get that photo for us.
1: Oh, and Ken, I wanted to add the next race for the team will be at CES in Las Vegas in January 2024.
0: Book your tickets. I think I want to go see that. Well, this is all really exciting. And I think everyone in the UVA community is proud of the Link Lab. John, as director, prospective graduate student, someone who wants to be involved in the Link Lab, how can they get involved? How can they learn more? That's a great question. I mean, the, the quick answer is
2: find us on our website to learn more about all the work that we're doing. I would give the website address, but really, if you just Google Link Lab UVA Engineering, you'll find it quickly. Mm -hmm. On the website, you'll see some of the collaborative projects we have, but really going and looking at the list of faculty that are part of our lab is a good way to to dig in a bit more and see what research is happening. And students are always welcome to email me as well. Uh, My email is goodall, G-O-O-D-A-L-L, at virginia.edu, and I would say this invitation goes to both prospective grad students, but also undergrads that want to get plugged in more on research. We'd love to have you participate on projects. And I think it's a really great opportunity to gain hands-on experience in some of the cutting-edge engineering and computer science topics and problems that are happening
0: right now. Great. And don't forget, we have the Link Lab open house and when was it? October? 10th and 11th. October 10th and 11th. John, Laura, thank you very much. Uh, You're both fulfilling President Ryan's vision for UVA to be great and good in all that we do. So thank you for being here today. It's been a pleasure. I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum professor of mathematics. And you've been listening to Who's in STEM.
1: Who's in STEM is produced by Katherine Kosoboom, Rhea Verma, Mary Gardner mcgee and Ariane Belou. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples and Stereo. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.